everyone, and welcome to a new episode of In Conversation With. I'm Jose Arroyo, uh, and today I'm very pleased to have uh, with me uh, Tom Waugh. Uh, Tom is uh, a distinguished uh, figure uh, in uh, film studies. Uh, he's contributed important work in documentary, uh, in Canadian cinema, uh, in queer histories of uh, visual cultures in art, uh, photography, and cinema. Uh, and he is a foundational figure uh, in the developing area of, of porn studies. Uh, there are basically three reasons why I wanted to talk to Tom now. Uh, one is, is personal. I, I was playing a, a game online where people were showing off uh, their bookshelves. Uh, and uh, you know, these were mainly uh, people working in areas of, of queer theory and culture. And the one book that we all had in common uh, was Tom's uh, Hard to Imagine. Uh, the other reason that I wanted to talk to him is because I've been doing a lot of reading on the George Platt line circle uh, and finding a lot of uh, drawings and photographs by George Platt lines, by Paul Katniss, by Pavel Chelichev, uh, and many others, uh, many of them that have reappeared uh, in uh, uh, an exhibition and catalogue uh, called The Young and Evil, uh, but which actually find their source uh, in uh, heart, or at least first mention, uh, in Hard to Imagine uh, and a series of uh, subsequent uh, uh, coffee table books of erotic uh, art. Uh, that Tom did for Arsenal Press. Uh, I'm thinking here of Lust on Earth, uh, Outlines, uh, and others. Um, and also, uh, uh, the, the cinema of, uh, of Francois Leichhardt. <laughs> Ach, which again kind of is interestingly mentioned uh, in uh, Hard to Imagine. So I suppose kind of, you know, I want to connect it back to this source of this very important uh, uh, book uh, that is now coming to its 25th anniversary. Uh, and that is my third uh, reason for wanting to Tom now, uh, you know, to, to celebrate uh, this uh, really important uh, contribution uh, to the history of not only uh, homosexualities, but sexuality uh, in general. Uh, hello, Tom. Uh, Why don't we begin at the beginning? Why don't you tell me how this book started? A good question. Um, I got tenure in 81 and all this work on old left documentary I'd been doing in my dissertation felt as if it had come to an end and I needed a new area. And I had just begun to edge in the queer stuff, which was diametrically opposed to my work on old left documentary in many ways. I'd been writing for the Body Politic in Toronto, uh, film reviews and for Jump Cut as well. And um, this was the height of the porn, the gold, so-called golden age of gay male porn. Uh, and I thought, 
well, uh, I'm fascinated by this. Let's, let's do some research on it. And my friend Chuck Kleinans had told me I had to go to the Kinsey Institute. This was bursting with amazingly unknown materials on gay male uh, sexual history. So I went down there and I was just blown away. It was an amazing collection. Kinsey and his pals had done an amazing job collecting. And us glib gay libbers at the time didn't know anything about this stuff. We thought everything had begun with Stonewall in 1969, but there'd been a whole century of gay men before that uh, experimenting with um, first photography, of course, and then uh, film, and as well as with graphic materials and the history the archive of erotic materials in all three of those media was just lying there ready to be explored. And so I explored it. And eventually I first published a couple pieces in the body politic cover stories. And they were terrified because they'd been in and out of court for five or six years. And they were sure that running explicit cocksucking photos would bring on the cops. And that was a legitimate fear. Their lawyers said, under no circumstances, publish this stuff. And they did anyway. And one of my defenders at the paper, just a footnote, Gerald Hannon, one of the founders of the paper, a great pioneer in Canadian gay liberation, just died last week. Uh, so it's sort of an interesting convergence. Mm. Uh, and it was his piece that had caused the body politics to be in court for so long, hasn't it? Yes, his famous article, Men Loving Boys Loving Men, had unleashed the cops in the early, in the late 70s and dragged them into court. It was really a test case uh, on freedom of expression uh, uh, in Canada and really around the, the West in many ways. Uh, and so, yeah, I was in, uh, working in the wake of that. The lawyer said, don't publish it. And we did anyway. We got away with it. And um, eventually a book project took shape, but not before the Kinsey discovered that I'd done this publication and they were hysterical mm. that I had published in a gay lib newspaper, which they call that kind of magazine and threatened to sue me and demanded that I return everything. Uh, they, they thought that the only scholars worthy of publishing on the Kinsey Institute were forensic anthropologists or something. Mm -hmm. uh, so, let, me, let me specify. So what, was, what were those initial articles that you published in the body politic and what images did, yeah, or which photographers or... Yeah, what was the content of those articles? Well, one was on film and one was on still photography. Uh, uh, and both were about this very rich archive of those materials. The films were both, were all anonymous, mm. uh, except for one, I'll come to that. And they were either stag films, that is silent porn films from the, uh, the first 30 years of the 20th century or amateur films. I discovered an amazing set of home movies from LA 
from the 1930s and even succeeded in tracking down the maker. Although they allegedly these films have been anonymous, I used my detective skills, which I didn't know I had, to track down the, direct, uh, the director. The, the still photography was a mixture of art photography and again, amateur stuff, diary type photography. And most, almost all of it was anonymous, although certain names kept coming back like von Gluden. Um, and um, yeah, so it was, they, these two articles were basically surveys of this very, very rich archive that was just sitting there waiting to be explored. And I was using my analytic skills uh, to, to bring out some of the, tropes and the motifs that had um, shaped those two archives of moving images and still images. Um, were there any patternings that kind of manifested itself? So, you know, you've written these articles, you're now thinking of writing a book, kind of, you know, how, how did you come to organize things in a particular way? Were there series of images? Were there patternings in the way they were imaged? Or kind of, you know, what areas did you begin to explore from that initial visit? Well, there was a whole set of both films and um, still photographs that were shaped by the alibi of physique mm -hmm. exercise, uh, uh, physical culture. And, you know, our ancestors got away with this alibi for a whole century. These are not erotic images. These are exercise photos or mm -hmm. exercise films. Uh, this is not a, a porn film. This is a film about wrestling, duh, you know. So a whole chapter came to be devoted to this physique alibi, both in terms of films and photographs. Mm -hmm. There was an, also an artistic alibi. Uh, these images are not porn, these are art. Hmm. So, you know, uh, especially in the interwar period, the names of certain queer artists uh, started to appear both from Europe hmm. and North America. So a whole chapter was devoted to that. Um, and I was also interested in the use of erotic images uh, for the advancement of knowledge and for political uses, uses mm -hmm. as well. For example, there was a famous shot of a man getting a blowjob in a glory hole in a Florida toilet from 1960 that had been uh, printed for police use to show police who to arrest in public toilets or mm -hmm. something like this. Somehow gay men got a hold of this photo, reprinted it millions of times, and it made the circulation the underground. Mm. So there was a whole chapter on these sort of utilitarian uses of erotic images and our community's appropriation mm. of them. Um, so uh, that's how the book uh, uh, eventually started getting organized. And I did a lot of research at the community archives in Europe, in Amsterdam and Berlin and Paris and London, mm. uh, my eyes getting wider and wider open. And uh, also in North America, uh, 
in, in New York and LA and uh, the LA archives, for example, the one Institute archives, uh, I really learned my way very quickly around these uh, public and community archives. It was a wonderful experience. And as you say, it took an awful long time between 1981 and the publication of the book in 1996, that was 15 years. Who would have thought, you know, when you're that young, I was like in my early thirties, you never imagined that a project is going to take 15 years. That seems like millennia, but. Yes, well, know. I mean, you know, and I, I suppose in, in the interest of the soldier, we'd say we lived together quite a bit of that time. Um, and I know that kind of there were things that um, were not uh, possible then as they are now. I mean, you know, queer theory had still to be invented. So kind of, you know, part of what I'm interested in is kind of, you know, your movement analytically through the finding of these various things. So, so for example, if I seem to remember, one of the things about the physique magazines was A, you're collecting them, you're tracing the photographers, you're speaking to some of those photographers if I'm, I'm not misremembering, right? So, I mean, you know, those are kind of different sets of skills that in a way, you know, you're bricolaging as you go along, right? Because it involves ethnography, it involves interviews, it involves, I suppose, a kind of a charm into letting people kind of uh, allow you to use their materials and open themselves up to whatever your questions are, which in those days were still kind of dangerous questions, if I'm, yeah? Uh, so tell me a little bit about that. Well, there was a lot of obscenity harassment going on, especially in North America, but in the UK also. And uh, publishers were very, very timid. I was the first book to run hardcore imagery. They wouldn't touch it. Mm. Uh, Linda Williams brought out uh, her book on pornography in 1989. The only reason that the University of California press would touch it was there wasn't a single image imagine a book on pornography without a single image in it mm. uh and they had turned me down as had every other publisher in north america uh and um so obscenity was a very important thing and whenever a publisher or the the kinsey institute discussed things with lawyers lawyers would go berserk mm. never talk to lawyers they were also concerned about civil liability. If you run this photo uh, from 1920 of a Dutch teenager, chances are he's still alive at the age of 85 and he's going to sue you. That is, mm -hmm. you know, so you, sorry, you can't run this photo. Just bullshit about civil liability. And then uh, copyright, uh, you have to demonstrate that these images are in the public domain. And of course, every jurisdiction has different laws, especially back then about uh, what is covered by copyright. And if you've made good faith, faith effort, efforts to track down the rights holder, normally you're covered, but not with such sensitive materials. So the last five years was just dickering with ridiculous heterosexual lawyers in New York, in Indiana, in, in Canada. Mm. Uh, but eventually, somehow I got lucky in Columbia University Press, saw the possibility, they started doing some LGBT 
stuff mm. and they were getting a good response. So they came on board and somehow they convinced their lawyers to let me run some of the photos, but not others. Mm. And there were nine photos that their ridiculous lawyers, I mean, the lawyers came along. I shouldn't call them ridiculous. There were nine photos. And this was in the pre-Photoshop era. There were nine photos that the lawyers insisted that I couldn't run the faces in. So therefore they got this techno wizard in the pre-Photoshop area to graft other faces onto the faces of those photos. And it turned out that this guy, this techno wizard just used his girlfriend's face. <laughs> so they're like really weird, these photos. Uh, like two Italian youth, 18 year olds, jerking off in a rowboat in the 1940s or something. And their faces don't look right. Mm. Um, I, I'm very interested in the, in the barriers uh, to publishing uh, and I'll come back to it. But, you know, I want to push you on this question of the material itself. How did you find it? How did you organize it? What avenues did you pursue? I mean, I remember, for example, you buying stuff in New York, right? So, I mean, was it random stuff? Did, you know, did you already have a set of ideas about kind of how you wanted this to fit in with, with uh, what you'd already found? Yeah, did the Kinsey Institute allow you back to do more research after the initial kind of contretemps? Um, yeah, let's let's linger there for a while. Yes, I went back several times to the Kinsey Institute, even though they had imposed all kinds of really difficult hoops to jump through. And I went to lots of secondhand stores, especially in New York, where I found wonderful materials because this archive of erotic materials had all circulated on the underground because it was totally illegal. Mm. So people would be making, men would be making copies, photographic copies of the materials in their bathtub. And so there are all these shady, mysterious, soft copies of this these treasures circling underground. And a lot of them ended up in secondhand stores in New York. And I would grab everything I saw. I had another pervert friend who was a, a rabid collector also. And he shared his materials with me. Uh, and I began to recognize familiar tropes or familiar faces or even familiar um, locations bedspreads and things mm -hmm. and uh this for example a, a, a famous physique photographer bruce of los angeles uh was well known for his above ground legit physique photography throughout mm -hmm. the 50s and 60s but then i found his illicit works also and they started to look a little bit familiar maybe the same model appearing in the two things, in the two categories. And so I put together an illicit uh, corpus of, for example, Bruce of Le Los Angeles photos. So it was detective work. It was amazing mm. detective work. It was such a pleasure mm. pouring all over these filthy images that I grew to love. And 
establishing patterns, authors, periods, uh, locations. I mean, obviously the American stuff was very different from the German stuff mm. uh, or the British. Mm. My God, when I went to do my research in, in, in England, uh, someone took me to a country estate at Christmas time and some uh, collect rich collector's wife served us Christmas cake and then disappeared and he took us into his archive and I was stunned by what he had and she was she was busy making Christmas cake had no idea what her husband had in the basements of their mansion it was and what did he have what what did he have what did you find well uh I'm sure this isn't going to be a broadcast in a podcast or anything but there were some illegal materials let's say okay okay all right um so you you're beginning to amass this material you're beginning to order them you're beginning to see patterns right kind of what was your aim in doing this work what did you hope to accomplish what did you think you know even at the initial spaces at stages what was the contribution uh going to be in your head well uh it was the generation of queer historians doing their groundbreaking work, Beirube, D'Amelio, Katz, and they were all my friends. Mm. And my contribution was to establish erotic representation as an essential part of this history, not only community organizations, not only judicial files from the courts of New York and Europe, but an archive of the imagination, of the erotic imagination. Mm. That was an essential part of our history as judicial records, in my opinion. And I wanted to establish that history, and I think I did so. Mm. And in many ways, I mean, I wasn't the first person to think about this because collectors had been exploring archives forever, but without this kind of scholarly and political and intellectual uh, agenda. They were just, yeah. I met so many of these people who were just hoarders. They love their collections and they would go to any lengths to add to them. Mm. But I wanted to, to uh, create a, a a scholarly and cultural uh, archive that would be public. All right. Well, I mean, I think, you know, in a way, the clues in the title, it's hard to imagine. Yeah, uh, because, you know, it's hard to imagine that there's already this visual path dating, you know, from the very inception of photography, but also those are images that are designed to make you hard. Yeah, so it's kind of, I suppose, that double, uh, double entendre in the title. Um, but uh, again, you know, these materials must have presented problems, both in terms of how you, what you find, how you find it, how you organize it, and how you understand it. Do you remember what those problems might have been in relation to different materials? Yeah, so for example, I noticed um, that uh, um, in uh, the book, you have a whole section on Hirschfeld, right? Yeah, kind of, you know, uh, uh, and now, of course, 
you know, probably every gay person in Germany in 1920 knew who he was, you know, but by the 80s, that was not necessarily so, or was it? Yeah, I mean, kind of, what was that a good, process? A good point. I mean, I, I recognized from the beginning Hirschfeld as my ancestor, because a uh, forebear, because as among everything else he did, his magnificent contribution, he was also a collector mm. of erotic images, much of which was, which was destroyed. But in his published books, you see a lot of erotic images. And he also recognized, he was maybe the first person to recognize how this archive was essential to the history of sexuality, to court or especially of sexual minorities, but not only. Um, so, yeah, I was very conscious of following in his footsteps. And I have several images from his collection in, in that book. Uh, now I've forgotten what your question was, Jose, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, and this is like a kind of an ongoing question because I suppose my own interest is that a lot of these things seem self-evident now, right? I mean, basically, you're dealing with a kind of a pornography to a large extent, yeah? Kind of images that were produced illicitly, that were circulated underground, and that nonetheless, the argument is, constitute a kind of an, an, an imaginary and also a cultural heritage, right? So, I mean, I think, you know, uh, there's an acceptance of that now. I mean, I don't think there was an acceptance of, the, of that then, you know, and particularly since you mentioned, and since I know all the problems that you had upon each installment of publication. Yeah, so I, I suppose I just wanna kind of get inside your head and think, you know, kind of what did you aim to achieve? Yeah, what materials did you find? How, how did you make sense of them? And kind of, you know, what, what methods did you develop? Because I imagine they had to be developed yeah, in order both to make a point intellectually and also to kind of get it in the public sphere. Does that make um, sense? <laughs> well, I, other, I mean, I sort of feel I've, I've responded to those questions to a certain extent. I mean, my interviewing, doing oral histories with some of the, the uh, producers who were still alive in their 80s. Uh, um, that gave me some leads in terms of, of my research. For example, they helped me understand what networks existed among makers and um, consumers and distributors. Um, what kinds of relationships, because all of this, of course, is a history of relationships among everything else, between models and photographers, for example, models and filmmakers. And uh, uh, it sort of calls into question the rigidity of sexual orientation labels, among other things. Um, so yeah, oral histories were very interesting and sort of exploring archives and uh, waiting for inspiration to to hit, I would grab everything I I would I could find, and after Hard to Imagine came out, I s realized I had a huge collection of graphic materials, mm. which in many ways were even sleazier than the photos. I thought I have to do something with that, 
So then I brought out my three books that were non-scholarly with mm. a community publisher in Canada, uh, co mostly collections of graphic materials, a, a century's worth of graphic materials. And that was a whole new ball game because I'm not a art historian. Uh, this is not my field. And uh, I had to go slowly through this, mm. uh, consulting occasionally with art historians. Uh, but they hadn't really treated amateur drawings seriously either, ever. And not all of these were amateur mm. drawings. For example, you and I have discussed this, but the first volume of drawings and then the second one included lots of anonymous drawings by well-known artists like Paul Cadmus and even Andy Warhol, but don't tell the Andy Warhol estate this. Yes, and Pavel Chelichev, actually, some of Chelichev, his yes. uh, uh, to the Kinsey archive. Yeah, so I mean, I think that is, you know, kind of one of the fascinating things is that, you know, everybody who, every person who was into, every male homosexual <laughs> who was producing art was also producing these images, and, you know, kind of almost on whatever yeah. kind. Scale. They weren't only professional artists, they were gay yeah. men and they were jerking off to photos like everyone else. Yes. And a lot of these kind of, uh, like you said, made their way into vintage shops. Yeah, kind of, uh, uh, which is uh, presumably where you found a lot of uh, these things. And I think also the interesting trajectory for me is that, you know, uh, you find them you suspect they're made by very skilled artists because it's evident in the drawing itself, but actually it takes a while to be able to name them properly. Yeah, uh, and also to be able to see that they were in fact kind of, some of them originating at Kinsey. They were made for Kinsey, uh, some of those images. So I, I think, you know, it's one of the fascinating things about your book is that you kind of, you know, you set up, yeah, this kind of history, yeah, uh, you 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 open up uh, ways of investigating this imagery that also you locate uh, and that continues to reverberate today. Uh, but maybe the reason why I was pressing kind of on your method is because you know this was all before Judith Butler and East Sedgwick and you know the inceptions of queer theory. Right. So I think kind of, you know, one of the things that interests me as well is that, you know, kind of the book uh, has become so kind of rooted in a whole series of ways of talking about, you know, homosexual men in relation to culture, you know, kind of from identity to history to kind of, you know, visual imagery in drawing and photography and in film. So kind of that's why I was, you know, maybe pressing for it. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, um, it's something that would be done very differently today that in fact, you know, uh, uh, might not be done at all or certainly kind of not with the scope, you know, that kind of you succeeded uh, in doing uh, in the book. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I was finishing the book as uh, queer theory was bursting onto the scene and I don't use a lot of very abstract theory in my work, either in terms of documentary or 
queer history just a little bit. And one of the things that some of the reviewers said when Hard to Imagine came out in 1996 was they commented on this absence of high theory. And one reviewer even said, I hadn't even read Freud. Although, you know, I published Hirschfeld's photo of Narcissus. Uh, uh, so I thought that was good enough. Um, <laughs> no, so, so, so yeah, I mean, I thought that this nitty gritty kind of documentary and oral historiography was, I was able to bypass Judith Butler. I mean, I didn't have time to read Judith Butler because I was- Well, she didn't exist. I mean, Well, you know, she did in the last four years before the book came out. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, but really in those very last stages before it came out. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and, and personally, I think that's also kind of, you know, one of the achievements of the book that kind of you're cobbling together a way of finding out things as well as, the, as what you found, uh, which I think uh, uh, is very important. I think one of the things that I also wanted to mention was your coming across uh, Francois Reichenbach's uh, film at uh, the archive, which I think is also, you know, uh, one of many important contributions. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you found it? Well, Chuck had looked at it when he went down to, to Kinsey and thought it was this a wonderful, anonymous amateur film that Kinsey had somehow got his hands on. I had to see it and I looked at it. It's a beautiful film. It's not terribly experimental. It's a beautiful pioneering gay narrative, a romance basically set in very identifiable American cultural contexts, including New York and New Jersey beautiful film somehow we figured out who the author was Francois Reichenbach and then sort of started putting the pieces together in this detective work just figuring out oh yeah I guess Reichenbach came over and hung out with this American underground gay network and hung out with Kinsey and and contributed to Kinsey So Tom, why don't you tell me a little bit about how the book was received uh, uh, when it was first published and your view of the afterlife that it's had subsequently. Okay. Uh, at the time it was reviewed widely. <clears throat> the academic reviews were somewhat measured as you know how academics are. Um, um, and I think some of them didn't recognize the various breakthroughs that I was so proud of, um, especially reviewers not belonging to the gay male community. Mm. The reviews in the pop gay media were very enthusiastic, like, um, the Advocate, for example, in the body politic. And I really appreciated that. They, they got it. Uh, and that 
made it all worthwhile. The problem with subsequent reception is one, that the book is very expensive. And secondly, that with my very, very witty title, it doesn't get uh, listed on, on databases very well. So people who are looking for queer history or the history of porn or whatever, don't find it. What is hard to imagine? I mean, this is a lesson I seemingly never learned with the romance of transgression, you know, that also doesn't show up on databases. So uh, uh, I think there's a, there's a certain later generation of academics who aren't aware of the book or don't give uh, appropriate uh, acknowledgement of the book, in my opinion. Uh, all the more so, for example, with, with Jeffrey Escoffier, uh, who is a social scientist rather than a humanist, although his work is wonderful. Um, and um, I think also just sort of elaborating on this, uh, this aspect a little bit more before I come back to your question, I, I think um, certain scholars on porn in general don't think that the history of gay porn is pertinent to their work. For example, Eric Schaefer, uh, who's done a history of softcore and uh, exploita exploitation film, doesn't give me the time of day, even though my work, uh, my research is very, very relevant to that broader issue. Uh, Linda Williams has uh, uh, integrated my work into her updated volume of, um, uh, of um, her famous book. Hardcore. So she's, she, she's one of the exceptions to this. And of course the jump cut work on porn history uh, does uh, acknowledge this research as well. So, so it's spotty and uneven, the, the uh, contemporary academic uh, reception of the book, uh, in my opinion. And part of that is Columbia's fault. If they set up an online version of it, there would be no problem, but you have to spend over $100 for this defective hardcover reprint in which the photos have all been spoiled. Hmm. So it's really a problem. I think you're misremembering a bit because I'm just looking <laughs> at, the back, at the back of your book you know, and I'm seeing Andrew Ross, a major achievement of cultural history. Uh, you know, you get enormous praise from George Chauncey. Uh, Constance Penley says it's a landmark study. Of course, you know, Linda Williams, you know, and Richard Dyer, you know, a thrillingly, a thrillingly assiduous retrieval of basic data of the gay erotic Im Im imagery and a total vindication of the importance of such material. Okay, well, I apologize to those two heterosexuals <laughs> you indicate. So these are kind of their recognition of my book. These are major figures. So they are. Um, so I think I think the thing that annoys me and I was talking to John Mercer about this is the tendency for young American scholars to credit Escoffier, 
you know, with, you know, the foundation of all of Cohen studies, which is, which is just wrong. Uh, and which I think kind of, you know, basically sidelines, you know, the major achievement that is this book. And wasn't Escofia your agent when, yeah, when this book was first proposed, yeah? Yes, he was. He was an old friend dating from the 70s and he wanted to get into publishing. And so he handled the book for me. Um, may he rest in peace. He just died. Um, um, I have a very, very negative history with agents. So uh, I just don't, uh, I should have just done it myself. Uh, but um, yeah, I think Escoffier's work on contemporary gay porn is, is very important. His, his work, his oral histories, interviews with stars, etc., And um, it complements the, the very important and brilliant British school, for example, both in terms of the, 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 the periodical porn studies and work by people like John uh, Mercer. And unfortunately, he and the younger generation of American porn scholars, I think, don't read French or German. And they're unaware of the really important uh, work in those two languages. Uh, they do read English, however. So <laughs> a bit more reading is, is suggested. Um, I, I want to go back a little bit because I think I do think that part of what is to me the major achievement of just having done this book was the context in which it was done. You know, we were in the middle of these of these uh, culture wars. You know, I remember in Canada the bookstore in Vancouver was raided, the bookstore in Toronto was raided. I'm not, I'm not sure if Landrogen in Montreal was raided. There were all the McKinnon, Dworkin, anti-porn stuff. You know, I remember us going to uh, uh, the Mapplethorpe uh, exhibit at the Whitney, you know, and the subsequent uh, uh, defunding or slashing of funding of the National Endowments for the Arts because it funded Mapplethorpe. Uh, and I think we were the Cultural Workers uh, Committee against obscenity laws. I think it was the Fraser Commission in Canada. So this book is done in that context, which is really saying all of this imagery, all of this study, all of this gay stuff is forbidden. Yeah. So, and, and we're going to actually either cut your money or raid your bookshop or, yeah, if, if, if you, if you, uh, uh, send it through the mail or if you provide it for sale in bookshops. So, you know, the fact that you did this research during this time is, is very significant to me. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on, on that. Board. Well, it's a very important reminder of the context. It's absolutely true. The, the work was done and the book came out at the height of the porn wars. Um, and not only in the US and the UK, but also in Canada, uh, the obscenity, obscenity provisions of the criminal code were updated as this was all going on and very much influenced by the Dworkin McKinnon uh, stuff in the States. And these updates allowed the cops and the customs to harass us even further in Canada. So this was the context. And uh, I, I really have to keep mentioning how brave Columbia was to run these picks. Uh, 
1996. Good for them. I mean, at the time I was complaining endlessly and I'm still complaining endlessly, but I have to acknowledge how brave they were to intervene in the, the so-called porn wars uh, the way they did. I mean, and at the time, around the turn of the century, a lot of us felt that we had won the sex wars, we had won the porn wars, but, you know, history goes in circles and we're back. Mm. And uh, uh, in, the, in the wake of the Me Too, Me Too movement and uh, the, the, the uh, lingering criminalization of sex work around the world, and the recriminalization of uh, porn in certain instances, uh, the, the influence of demagogues like Gail Dines, uh, it's back. And so uh, it's very important to um, maintain our rigor and our courage in terms of exploring these histories. And I think one of the things that you did very well is always kind of keeping a foot in activism and kind of being part of like community struggles and, you know, so that all of these debates and, you know, the legal framework and, uh, you know, the resistance uh, towards that is, I think, also uh, a, a kind of embedded, yeah, in a history of the book. And I think it's also something more important than now, than, than ever now, because, you know, I was thinking, you know, if I, you know, when we finish this interview, if I were to put it, you know, through the university portal or something that other people might be interested in seeing, I have to give content warnings. Whereas I can't imagine showing vintage drawings of naked women from, you know, uh, paintings of early in the century. I don't imagine content warnings would be necessary for that. So there is kind of, you know, still very much this implicit kind of an enforced uh, structural homophobia that I think is strong, stronger than ever, really. Um, oh my God, I can't believe you're going to have to put content warnings on this, this scholarly discussion. <laughs> well, I'm trying to find a way around it, actually, but, uh, you know, just to, to reinforce your point, yeah, that it swings and roundabouts, and now the culture is swinging uh, back uh, in, in, in a repressive uh, direction. Um, I want to I get back to the point about kind of methods and queer theory. Yeah, kind of this was all work that you did uh, before. Uh, uh, you know, queer theory was developed. Again, you know, uh, uh, I was talking to a friend and he was saying, well, yes, you know, all of these works like Judith Butler and so on came out in 91, 92, 93, that period. So just a little bit before your book was published, but actually they didn't really enter into a cultural conversation uh, or even, you know, an academic one until a few years later. Yeah, so I just wondered if you have any thoughts on that. Yes, I do. Um, I kept my distance from the emerging Teresa De Laurentiis, Judith Butler gang, although I loved Eve Sedgwick, who sort of started a little bit earlier than they did. Uh, but my major theoretical framework 
uh, as odd as it might sound, I think was Marxism. Uh-huh. I had been a part in the new, in New York in the 1970s of a queer Marxist study group, and uh, otherwise I would never have read Das Kapital. Um, but other people in the group, Jonathan Katz and John D'Amelio, went on to be major queer historians later in the 70s and in the 1980s. And uh, I'd want to add to that list Alan Berube, um, who was much more a community um, scholar rather than a trained academic. In fact, he and D'Amelio had been boyfriends at one point. Hmm. Which But Jonathan Katz wasn't a trained academic, was he? Correct, Katz also. So, so the importance of community historiography just needs to be really stressed. So I saw myself in that company and I kept asking myself the question, what would a historical materialism of queer desire look like? So continue, you were a community. Uh, uh, I saw myself in the company of the Marxist gay historians like D'Amelio, and Katz and Berube. And I wondered how one would develop a kind of historical materialism of gay desire. Um, that's probably one of the reasons I, I really pushed the oral histories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's also the reason I really insisted on in emphasizing the, the, the objects The commodities and I think one of my major insights that came slow as I was doing all the research was that gay male consumption the commoditization that was going on around physique culture in the 1950s and 60s was a very essential motor of uh, gay liberation of the emergence of LGBT communities and I felt that it had not been given as enough attention in comparison to the neophyte gay organizations like Mattachine and Gay Activist Alliance and the, I forget the name of the organization in the UK. Uh, if you look at those old magazines, they're full of advertising. It's amazing. You could buy the most tacky uh, outfits in those magazines. in addition to dirty pictures. So I think that was an important insight that came out of this theoretical framework, um, which I hope uh, uh, will not be uh, forgotten. Can you tell me a little bit more about the oral histories? Because again, I think another you know, major achievement in the book is that you, know, you not only went to all of these different archives like In Germany and England, the Kinsey, uh, you know, in Amsterdam, but also you interviewed a lot of these pioneer uh, producers, yeah, these makers of images, both photographic uh, and uh, filmic, uh, you know, that are now long, long dead. So can you just kind of um, take me a little bit or reminisce a little bit about who you talked to? You know, and uh, um, maybe you know what the salient results or what you remember best about uh, about each of them or about a few of them. Well, the ones who were household names, uh, 
Bob Miser and Sam Stewart uh, were were wonderful encounters. And uh, I hope it wasn't me who pushed them to the brink because they both died shortly afterwards before the book came out. And the same was two of the anonymous person that I discovered that I, in, as I mentioned through my detective work, Otis Wade, also in, in LA, but it was also the oral histories I did in regional uh, centers that were in some ways the most interesting. Don Whitman of Western Photography Guild in Denver or um, um, Dick Fontaine somewhere in the California desert uh, who was um, driving Cadillacs, his Cadillac around the desert. He'd made all this money producing these tacky photos and films. And, uh, you know, he was still living with all these go-go boys at the advanced age of, I don't know how old he was, 75, oh, a wonderful guy. Uh, but, you know, you're sort of prodding me. I should really see if I can produce transcripts of these interviews and publish them. I think they'd be valuable. And in the UK and uh, France and Germany also, um, I met some very interesting people. Uh, a couple of them were constantly looking over their shoulder to make sure we weren't being spied on or surveilled. And that sort of reminded me that you know, of the, of the period in which they'd worked, in which they were in constant danger. And uh, uh, I learned a lot about the economics of this history. Um, about the technology that was being used. Uh, a lot of the pioneers were self-trained amateur photographers and filmmakers and had to develop their own work. Um, Otis, I think, had worked on the fringes of the film industry and somehow had a former boyfriend in one of the labs. I believe he got his 16 millimeter films developed in one of the labs through a, an X. Mm. So there were all these underground networks that were obviously really an important part of, in this history. Um, I'm wandering. I'm uh, wandering around here. Um, in answer to your question, you want a a complete list? No, I don't want the complete list. But I didn't want to let our conversation go by without mentioning that because, as I think, it's a major resource, and I do think that if you have transcripts of those interviews, I think it would be good to publish them. It would be good to make them available. I can't imagine uh, that uh, much exists. Uh, you know, in such a one-to-one -one basis. Yeah, I don't imagine they were being interviewed very often by very many people before they died. Um, so, so I just wanted to underline that. Hard to imagine also had a lot of permutations in that a lot of the work that uh, you began and, and amassed uh, from that project then uh, found a place in a development in a whole series of other books. Uh, do you want to tell me a little bit about that? It looks a bit, they look a bit strange. There are three or four of these books. They look a bit strange on my academic CV, but I'm proud 
to be a kind of crossover author to reach people who are not academics. I mean, some of the letters I've got, for example, in response to outlines, I got a letter from one of the original artists, uh, an elderly man, an African-American who, who, who's uh, wonderful, but a little bit clumsy uh, drawings of interracial power plays I published. Wow, where did you find that? I haven't seen that since I drew it for a, a collector who paid me $75. Wow, I'm so thrilled that you published this. This, this alone was a, a reward uh, to, to actually have connected with this person. Mm. It, was, it was wonderful. And there were about a, maybe a dozen of these letters from original collectors and artists. It was, it was thrilling to get those. I mean, I think, uh, you know, that was part of the whole project, wasn't it? I mean, I remember you giving talks before any of it had come out where people would come up to you visibly moved about a shared experience of the images that you were showing, right? So, I mean, I think even from those early talks, it was clear, you know, that, that it was an important project that people had a, a really personal investment in and that your work validated their experience in some way, would you say? Especially people who had suffered so much at the hands of cops or the courts. Mm -hmm. I um, gave a presentation, one of those slideshows or clip shows here in Montreal, uh, a benefit for the, the gay archives here. And afterwards, one of the guys came up to me, an elderly guy whose name I'd mentioned, I'd never been able to track him down, who went to jail, I believe in the 50s, and came up to me and said, I am John Ryan. And I, I couldn't believe it. I nearly burst into tears. I couldn't believe this man had introduced himself to me, had come to my presentation. I'm still very moved thinking about it back then. And, you know, this frivolous queer academic of the 1990s who didn't, had never been to jail, didn't understand what people were living with under in the 50s. Uh, uh, this was a reminder of my book was about really important things. Mm. I think the other thing that, I mean, I haven't thought about it, so it just occurs to me. Um, but I think it's somehow significant that you were doing this work or you began this work almost at the moment that AIDS began to appear. Yes. Uh, and the bulk of that work was done as, you know, the figures started to get out of control. I mean, I remember those covers of the New York Native where they would have that thermometer, remember? You know, 10,000 people died in New York today, or, yeah. And so, you know, kind of this work on the erotic imagery that was so sexy and healthy and beautiful and, you know, artistic, <laughs> you know, what's being done at that very moment where all the news was people dying, this, you know, bug that nobody knew, this gay cancer and so on, right? Uh, yeah. 
I mean, I think it's interesting that the book appears at the moment where combination therapy also appears, but it was all done in the moment just before that. Yeah, I was kind of, you know, the news was getting worse and worse and worse. I think that's a very astute comment. I mean, we were aware of this seeming incongruency between this uh, privileged exploration of erotic images from the deep buried, buried past while our community was traversing this unbelievable crisis. It was, we were very aware of it, myself and my hosts and my, my audiences. Um, and uh, there were there some articles, maybe one or two about the essential element of desire in the process of mourning, of how sexuality enters into the way we are dealing with death all around us. That meant a lot to me. And I cited that at one point and um, for me, it was a kind of justification of this frivolous work when everyone was dying. One of the slide clip shows I gave in the States somewhere, I can't remember where, was attended by Vito Russo just a couple months before his death. He was so sick and he was so sweet, so enthusiastic about this research. I was thrilled to see him and to he came up to me afterwards. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so this was on my mind, even though I, I mean, I referenced AIDS once or twice in the book, I'm sure. I don't remember exactly. But imagine all of this going on at the same time. You're right. This is very, very interesting. Mm. Um, we haven't talked enough about the films. And I remember one of the films, which I think was called something like Remember the Night. And it was, I think, one of those part two films that you talk about where, which was shown in Brussels. Sur surprise was, of a Night. Surprise of a Night, yes. Uh, and I think it was They about, didn't use three syllable words in, in the film titles. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and I remember, you know, kind of, how both joyful and how, in terms of present terminology, how queer, yeah, it was. Uh, so tell me a little bit about, you know, uh, uh, what different types of films did you discover in uh, the process of writing this book? Okay, well, this one in particular, for example, The Surprise of a Night, we, we traced it to the US, maybe 1930, totally anonymous. And you're right, it was joyous. It's just like a celebration of queer sexuality. Uh, I had come into this research as a film scholar, so the moving images were especially thrilling to me at that time because no one dreamt that there were queer sexual films from before World War II. No one in the queer scholarly community. And this was thrilling. So, and I remember I had rented a VHS camera from the Concordia IT department to take with me down to Indiana. And I got their permission, I hope, maybe not. I think I did, uh -huh. to videotape the film. 
And I was so excited that I totally fucked up and left the autofocus on. And it was on this jittery tripod and it's a terrible video uh, dupe of, of the film that kept going in and out of focus. But that to me has always exemplified my excitement at discovering these, these treasures. So the stag films are very important because it laid bare a whole structure of desire that was really pansexual, that was part of pop masculinity of the day. And these audiences in the American legions or wherever, or in European bordellos or South American bordellos who would see these films, uh, for them, this was like, uh, part of the excitement, this pansexual atmosphere. Mm. Um, Could you detect any patterns in? So, what, one of the things that I'm thinking, if you just, you know, if you found this film and like uh, that was made in 1930, you know, and obviously so many of your other of the other work you talk about are really from the 1950s. A lot of them, you know. So, what you have there is a development in technology from, you know perforce 35 to 16 to 8 and super 8. So, you know, does the availability of technology affect, yeah, what is made possible? Yes. I mean, I think once the, the whole movie cameras, super 8 and 16 millimeters start producing these films in the 1950s and 1960s, the, the production values go downhill, obviously. There are a lot of more, a uh, lot more visual absences. There's a lot more interaction with the camera too. Um, the, the, the performers in the stag films in 35 millimeter in the 1920s, you know, followed the codes mm. of cinematic production. Don't look at the camera. Well, sometimes they did, but mostly, you know, uh, producing narrative, uh, grammar so yeah the interactive moments started to become much more apparent in the late 50s and 60s and that was fascinating too mm -hmm. uh the quality went down sometimes and you know uh the, sometimes the quality of the copies which were usually illicit was very very bad there was a very important pioneering queer stag film from the 1950s called Three Comrades, I think, which you can hardly see on the screen. The quality is so bad. It must be a fifth generation copy of this thing. Mm. But you can see what's going on and you can date it. And so that's, that's mm. it's there. Maybe someday we'll find an original. What I was thinking, is there more, are there more home movies or homemade porn as kind of Super 8 comes uh, Well-off middle-class people in the 1930s, even earlier, started acquiring 16-millimeter home movie cameras. So this guy in L.A. that I put a lot of attention on, Otis Wade, his work was a thrilling discovery at the Kinsey. Uh, a couple of hours of home movies, mostly shot on the beaches of L.A., the nude beaches, and also in his garden in Silver Lake. So probably if he existed, 
there were dozens of others whose mm. work has been lost mm. or whose nieces and nephews, when they discovered their estate, were shocked and burned everything. Mm. Um, What's so, 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 and of course, there's a whole different thing going on with the amateur films, so much more playful, mm. although the stags are already extremely playful. <laughs> um, the, the amateur ones were, 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 were wonderful in that respect. Um, and again, this pansexual universe is there. All these presumably straight men loving to, to interact in this sexually subversive scene. I remember watching one film of a bodybuilder on the beach of LA with Otis. <laughs> and he would point out to me, you see that tiny little dick? That produced five children. <laughs> uh, I suppose, you know, we're running out of time now. And I, I, I want to ask you a couple of last questions. The first is, <laughs> what is going to happen with all of this collection that you amassed when uh, writing this project? Okay, a lot of it has already been donated to uh, the sexual representation collection at the University of Toronto. I had a hand in the founding of that collection in the 1990s with the late Brian Pronger. So I'm sort of happy that that has happened. I, I sent 41 cartons, believe it or not, to them, mostly full of VHSs, but not only, lots of albums of photos. So, um, and they seem to have enough money to sort of process these gifts. So the rest um, will probably go to them as well or else to the Quebec Gay Archives. Um, they're sort of like a, the Quebec Gay Archives don't have the resources that the University of Toronto do. Mm. So I'm worried that if I send them a lot of junk objects, for example, or <coughs> I don't know how they'll ever catalog it or make it available, um, but that's the issue with community-based archives. Hmm. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, the other question, which, uh, what, what are you proudest about the, the achievements or the contribution of Hard to Imagine? And you know what? What would you change? Were you were you writing it now? Were you to you know to be writing it now? I'm sort of proud that I pulled it off. Uh, I'm a very obsessive and stubborn person, as you know. <laughs> and, <laughs> I do, and I can't believe I pulled it off. Uh -huh. I mean, I could have given up at any moment. The odds were so negative. Uh, so that, and the, I think that it makes an important contribution to, to the history of sexuality, not just queer history, but the history of sexuality. Mm. Um, I think without a doubt. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. And um, maybe also that it was mostly self-taught. I didn't get any apprentissage in archival work or in visual arts or in the whole realm of 
amateur community culture. I learned it as I went along and I, I think I figured it out and understood it. And um, uh, I think the picture books, the, the three picture books are very important. One, uh, one of them is out of print. I hope Arsenal Paul brings it back into print, but the others are there. And I still get communications from people who've discovered this book. For example, there's a French uh, art historian who's doing a history of one of the artists in Lost Unearthed, uh, a Russian French artist named Sungorov. He was so excited to discover that, you know, 20 years ago I had pre-discovered this guy, uh, very talented erotic artist. And so it's, it's, it's sort of exciting that all of this stuff is out there and people are, 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 are working on it. Um, another generation. Um, Interesting, you know, because in a way you've just answered what I was trying to prod from you earlier. Maybe I asked it wrong. You know, because I do think this thing about being self-taught, about learning how to use the archives and so on, you know, that's in a way what I was yeah, prodding you for. So I'm glad you answered, you know, that bit <laughs> now. Uh, so, and what would you change? If you were writing it now, what would you do differently? If anything. Uh, Jose, I don't know. Um, maybe nothing. Mm. I mean, they're of their time, mm. obviously. I mean, maybe I would be more attentive to diversity. Um, but even then, I didn't do too badly. Mm someone just contacted me about, uh, do you know any uh, eight millimeter films from the archive by people of African descent? Duh, haven't you read my book? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, there's a wonderful series of super eight films by uh, a 1960s New Yorker named Ben Dover it would be wonderful you could get those and show those publicly. They're, they're, they're totally lubricious. I think he performs in them. And that would be such a coup. Hmm. I hope he's going to pursue this. I, he hasn't answered my email, though. So what's going on? Uh, uh, so you've answered, uh, you know, what would you change? Uh, and I think actually not not I wouldn't I wouldn't really change anything uh it's my favorite uh of your books I think it's a really great book uh and it's completely understandable why it continues to have the influence uh that it does uh so thank you very much Tom it's my pleasure it's great for you to push me to reflect on all these things I really appreciate it it's been so much fun mm -hmm.